deal, it kind of went, went badly. One of the guys was yelling, just kill him now. And the other one says, no, we got to get the rest of the drugs. No, let's just torch the place. You haven't felt anything till you felt the cold steel of a sawed-off shotgun against your neck. I'm an unlikely person to believe in Jesus. I grew up going to my grandparents' home and, and seeing pictures of relative after relative that had died at the hands of Hitler, and in the Jewish mindset, they had died at the hands of Christians. And I felt like Jesus and Christianity was, was my enemy. I was raised in a traditional Jewish home in New York City. I was bar mitzvahed at 13, went to synagogue Friday and Saturday. I love Jewish history. I love reading uh, the Jewish Bible. I love being Jewish, but I wasn't really sure about the religion. And so I ended up going to college and ended up dropping out of college. And then my friend Ephraim Goldstein and I went all the way to the West Coast. Ephraim and I joined uh, his brother, uh, Baruch, and his friend, uh, Jan Moskowitz. And uh, so it was the Goldstein, Moskowitz, and Glazer. Sounds like a law firm. But uh, we, were, we were all there in uh, San Francisco, and we built a houseboat. All I can say is that it floated, but it wasn't pretty. And uh, we built it with drug money. I'm contracted with this guy to, to buy some uh, marijuana. Unfortunately, he wasn't really going to buy the marijuana. He was going to steal it. He and his friends had sawed off shotguns and handguns, and they tied us up. My whole life was, was in front of my eyes. One guy said, just kill him, just kill him. And the other guy said, no, let's just torch the place. Let's just burn it down. And I'm just sitting there with my hands tied and feeling the shotgun saying, I can't believe that I was willing to die for just a few hundred dollars. I didn't die. <laughs> Which my kids are happy about. Uh, after a little while, um, I began really searching sincerely. Uh, and I went up and met my friends, uh, Ephraim Goldstein sitting right over there, and uh, met my friends up in Oregon who had come to the Lord through this kooky Christian commune in Oregon. And uh, I was raised more orthodox, so I tried to talk my friends out of it, but they didn't listen to me. And uh, the old guy who was running the place, who was really a very nice, nice guy, uh, gave me a Bible and he said, here, just read this. After all, the thick part's yours. <laughs> Thin part was ours too. Anyway, so I began reading it. And then I literally, uh, because I was raised more orthodox, our prayers were in Hebrew, they were written down. But I literally, for the first time in my life, said, God, show me. Show me how to get to you. And I was in the Redwood Forest in Pescadero. Anybody know where that is? Wow, that's amazing. Artichoke country. I was working for the Marin County Board of Education, a conservative bastion of those in Northern California. And uh, so I was working for the Marin County Board of Education as an ecology counselor. I don't know anything about it, but I like the woods. And I knew more than the fifth graders. <laughs> and so I was, so that night, I went to make a phone call at the phone booth, and on the ledge, instead of there being a copy of uh, a phone book, and if you don't know what a phone book is, look it up on Wikipedia, 
there was actually a copy of a little kind of strange looking book with newspaper covering and it said good news for modern man I had no idea what it was I began flipping through it had very strange chapter names Matthew Mark Luke John had no idea who these people were I was raised in a Jewish home I was 19 never saw a New Testament in my life finally I realized from the little stick figures in there that it was a, uh, a, a New Testament and uh, I realized that I had asked God to show me the truth and now I found a New Testament glowing in a phone booth with the moonbeams from the redwood trees going through the redwood trees and so I did what anybody else would do I stole the New Testament <laughs> repented of it later and so I began reading the New Testament and I discovered immediately something that shocked the daylights out of me. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but Jesus is Jewish. No, seriously. You, you read it, okay? I, I, kept, I kept looking for places where he celebrated Christmas, didn't find it once. <laughs> and so one day uh, I was sort of walking along the side of the road and someone was out uh, shooting a pheasant or some kind of fowl or something, and the bullets were kind of whizzing by our heads. So I thought maybe I should ask a policeman to make him stop. And, and so I was just walking along the Highway 1. It was a dark, cloudy day, and I just kind of looked up to heaven, and it was my critical moment. And uh, I, knew, I knew no other Christians except for my friends in Oregon. In fact, I didn't think there was anybody who believed like they did in the whole state of California. There are three. And, and so I, I looked up, and I still had one burning issue, and I just couldn't settle it. And, and I almost yelled at God. I said, you just don't understand. You don't have a Jewish mother. He did. <laughs> and so right then and there, I accepted Jesus as my Messiah. So people ask me sometimes, so Mitch, where would you be without Jesus? And I love giving a straight answer. You know, a lot of people think that I would be, you know, a typical Jewish guy, you know, maybe an accountant, a lawyer, or, you know, seminary professor at a Jewish theological seminary. And, and so my answer is, I'd be dead and in hell. Where would you be? See, I have no doubt what Jesus did for me in my life. And let me tell you, sometimes I'm happy. Hey, listen, I live in Brooklyn. I have joy, but I want to tell you that these are serious issues. It's the difference between life and death. It's the difference between heaven and hell. Telling Jewish people about Jesus makes the difference for all eternity for the Jewish person that comes to faith. You know, a lot of people are very nice to Jewish people, and I appreciate it, but there's kind of a reverse form of anti-Semitism that you should avoid. Some people say, we honor the Jewish people, we love the Jewish people. You went through so much in the Holocaust, so we don't want to burden you by telling you about Jesus. That's the worst form of love I've ever heard of. And, I, and people tell me this. The greatest love you can show to a Jewish person is by reminding them that Yeshua said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through and so if you remember anything this morning, remember that Jewish people need Jesus. I would say as much as Gentiles. <laughs> We're all made out of the same stuff. There's no hope outside of the Son of God.
Amen? Amen. All right, that is not the end of my sermon. <laughs> because Dr. Patterson said, take as long as you want. So, and I would hate to keep any of you from going to class. Uh, but I'd like to just uh, speak a little bit about uh, Yerushalayim. Uh, Jorge's song was just so beautiful. I appreciate it. It's getting better all the time. I heard it for the first time uh, a month ago. And, uh, and it's just a beautiful, beautiful reminder of God's love and heart for Jerusalem, for Israel, and for the Jewish people. And uh, so I just wanted to take a look at Jerusalem past, present, and future but I won't take too long, I promise. Uh, there is a mention of Jerusalem in the pre-biblical period, um, some Canaanite inscriptions and so on, but the first time we really hear about Jerusalem is in that very strange encounter between Father Abraham, or Avraham, and uh, Melchizedek, uh, the king of Salem, which means peace, which is uh, Jerusalem. Uh, Randall Price, who's a great scholar, said, think of the prophetic association here for Jerusalem's future role with the Messiah. As in Hebrew, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And the historic king of Jerusalem came to present a gift to the forefather of all Israel. And uh, sh showing that he was honoring what uh, probably he didn't fully understand. Because one day, the greatest of all and most righteous kings would come as the seed of Abraham. And then uh, during the reign of uh, King David, Jerusalem was established. David reigned in Hebron, of course, for uh, some years, seven and a half years, and then 33 years uh, he reigned in Jerusalem. I think one of the greatest things that David did besides ex expanding the territory and so on never quite meeting the biblical boundaries in Genesis 15. Those are still unmet and unheld. And so uh, if you read those boundaries, and I told Patrick, at least he didn't get Genesis 15, will all, all the ite people uh, to pronounce. Uh, but uh, David did expand the boundaries from 6,000 to 60,000 square miles, according to Chuck Swindoll. But yet, still those boundaries are, are not met. But he had great success as a king. Uh, uh, David certainly did. Uh, but one of the greatest things that David did was he brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. And that's important. Because Jerusalem is great. But it's not great because the throne of the king is in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is great because it's the throne of God was in Jerusalem. It was the presence of God in the heart of Jerusalem that made Jerusalem a sacred city. And David brought the ark home. And David wanted to build a house for God, but God wouldn't let David build a house for God. That would fall to Solomon, uh, his son. But God instead chose to build a house for David. And that house for David, second, two chapters earlier than in uh, chapter 9 and 2 Samuel chapter 7, David uh, was... Uh, the father of a dynasty, a dynasty of kings, leading to the one true king overall, Jesus the Messiah. The temple, brothers and sisters, not the throne, is where the true power lies. The throne always needs to be submitted to the temple in order to be successful. And when that principle is broken, then the nation Israel suffered, and ultimately Jerusalem felt the most pain for Israel's disobedience, because it was oftentimes the focal point of judgment. Well, you know the story. You're in seminary. And so 
<laughs> and so Jerusalem ended up being uh, divided just uh, a little bit after the end of David's reign. And then in 586 B.C., you understand that the temple was destroyed by the uh, Babylonians. And then uh, Jewish people lived in exile for 70 years, as predicted by Jeremiah in chapter 2511. And then after that exile uh, was ended, they returned uh, to Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple and rebuilt the city under Ezra and Nehemiah. Only took five years to rebuild uh, the temple, and it showed it. it. It wasn't much. It caused the elders to weep. And 13 years later, under Nehemiah, he arrived to rebuild uh, the city. So the city of Jerusalem and the temple were further rebuilt and reached a new level of glory under King Herod. Uh, but then again, uh, as what usually befell the Jewish people because of disobedience, in 70 AD, the Romans came in, swept through the city, tore the temple down stone by stone. And if you ever go to Rome on a nice uh, tour, you can walk right under the Arch of Titus and see the elements of the temple uh, carried on Roman pagan shoulders uh, to, uh, to Rome. In 132 AD, even though Jerusalem had sort of been re restarted under the Bar Kokhba rebellion, Jerusalem was once again pulverized and renamed Aela Capitolina, named after Roman gods. And so the Romans tried to paganize uh, Jer Jerusalem. And one has to ask themselves the question, particularly if you're Jewish like me, what did we do? <laughs> Reminds me of Reb Tevye looking up to heaven after he found out that Anatevka was going to be destroyed by the Ukrainians. And he looked up and he said, next time choose somebody else. What did we do? What did we do? Well, it goes back to this, and I'll quote Dr. Patterson the day he installed me uh, as president of Chosen People Ministries. I will never forget the message from the book of Revelation. He said, brothers and sisters, we need to love what the devil hates and hate what the devil loves. And maybe you've heard that before. But it's still true. It's still true. When God chose Abram, out of Ur of the Chaldees and said, I'm going to make you a great nation and the world is going to be blessed through you. You're going to be a bridge of redemption to the nations, to a dark and sinful world. As soon as God chose Abram, the devil chose him too. And even though Israel deserved much of what we got because of disobedience, still the devil's been after us ever since. He tried to destroy the Jewish people so that the Messiah would never be born. And now he continues to try to destroy the Jewish people so that one day the Jewish people will not do what the Jewish people are destined to do, and that is to one day cry out, Baruch HaBaba Shem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If the devil can destroy us before we turn and repent and receive Jesus as our Savior, then he thinks he can prevent the second coming of Christ. That's not going to happen. Well, Israel has a lot of enemies today, and uh, we live down the block in Manhattan from one of those enemies. Um, and uh, I don't want to paint a completely negative picture, but just a short time ago, uh, a group called UNESCO, do you know who they are? Yeah, they, they're, they're supposed to preserve historic monuments of ancient cultures. And uh, UNESCO uh, came out with a statement 
trying to separate the Jewish people from Jerusalem and the Temple Mount to prove that the Jewish people actually never really even lived in Israel. By doing so, they denied the inspiration of both the Old and the New Testaments, and they absolutely did something that is, I think is just uh, very hard to do. In one breath, they offended both Christianity and all of Judaism. That's not easy. And so chosen people uh, responded because uh, we are uh, spiritual schizophrenic, we are Christians and Jews, and so we were doubly offended. <laughs> and so we did a petition online and got tens of thousands of people to uh, sign off on it. And let me just read a word or two of it. As concerned Americans, we are disappointed by the recent resolution by the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, UNESCO, denying the biblical and historic links between the Jewish people and Jerusalem. The Occupied Palestine Resolution undermines the sacred bond between Jews and Christians to holy sites in Jerusalem throughout Israel. The UNESCO mandate states that their goal is to promote understanding among nations and intercultural understanding by protecting heritage and supporting cultural diversity. Yet how can this be true if UNESCO disrespects the view of the Bible cherished by both Jews and Christians throughout the world? The resolution falsely claims that Israel is an occupying nation, implying that East Jerusalem, if not all of Jerusalem, belongs to Palestinians. Falsely claims that Israelis are destroying sacred Palestinian sites through archaeological research, which is patently untrue. Falsely claims that the Temple Mount and areas surrounding the Western Wall and Old City of Jerusalem are solely Palestinian sites. Hey, we're willing to share. By rejecting the Hebrew term for the site, Har Habayit, and its English equivalent, the resolution presents a skewed and biased representation of history and additionally falsely claims that there's no Jewish connection to Hebron, which the Bible claims to be the burial site of Rachel, Rachel, the wife of Isaac, and Bethlehem, the birthplace of Ruth, David, and Jesus. As those who are concerned about the Jewish people believe the Bible and honor the Judeo-Christian tradition that's been so important to our nation, we call upon UNESCO to retract the resolution and recognize the historic and sacred relationship between the Jewish people and all of Jerusalem, including the Temple Mount, recognizing that these sites are holy to our faith. And we got thousands of people to sign the resolution, and lo and behold, the president of UNESCO disagreed with their own statement. We know that from the New Testament, Jesus, actually loved Jerusalem. The Savior loved Jerusalem. He went there to Passover, debated with the rabbis on the Feast of Tabernacles, which we're celebrating even now. He cried out uh, during the Feast of Tabernacles that if they come to him and drink from their inward parts, would flow rivers of living water. In Luke chapter 19, he wept over the city of Jerusalem. On Passover, in the upper room in Jerusalem, he declared that this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant, my blood, and the body which is, and the bread is the body given for you. He prayed in an upper room. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then on that incredible day that changed the course of eternity, he was crucified on Calvary, and then he was raised from the dead from a small cave, a tomb. 
And Jerusalem became the birthplace of the church when the Holy Spirit fell. And then Jerusalem also became the focal point of the Great Commission for the church. The gospel begins in Jerusalem, Acts 1.8. And one day the gospel will conclude in Jerusalem because the one who embodies the gospel will reign as king. You cannot possibly separate Jews or Christians from our beloved Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem throughout history for almost two millennia remained a pretty dark place. There was always a Jewish presence in the Holy Land. That's important to remember. But the city of God was dominated by others. It was the focal point of the brutal crusades and Ottoman domination for centuries. And then in 1948, a miracle happened. The Jewish people returned home, gathered from the nations of the world, as Scripture promised. And then in 1967, miracle of miracles, Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, became one united city. But Jerusalem, even though it's one united city, under siege admittedly, but one united city is still not what God intended his city to be. Jerusalem today is a city of contrast, religious, Secular, filled with contention and vulnerable to terrorist attacks. I find Jerusalem to be magical, absolutely magical. How many of you have been there? How many of you would like to go? How many of you are waiting for Jesus to pay your ticket? Okay, good. <laughs> Just check. Okay. <laughs> Don't be cheap. And so you, you all need to go to Jerusalem. The Bible will never be the same. As you speak about Jerusalem, like me today, I can see the walls. I can see the narrow streets. I can see the Temple Mount. I can see the Mount of Olives where the feet of Jesus will stand when he returns. Oh, you've got to go. One day, Jerusalem, which is not what God intended now, will be everything that God intended because one day Jerusalem will be the capital of the Messiah's kingdom. And I mean that literally. He will establish his rightful throne as predicted by the prophet Isaiah, who said there'll be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. Jerusalem will be the home and capital of the millennial kingdom when Yeshua returns. Good to be in a seminary where I don't have to be afraid to use those words. He will come and his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. And then he will, he will reign, he will destroy the enemies, and Jerusalem will become everything that God intended it to be. Now, I'd like you to just open for a moment Isaiah chapter 2. There are so many wonderful descriptions of what Jerusalem will be in that great day. But I thought just for a moment we'd look at Isaiah chapter 2. Of course, uh, these days I preach Jewish style, so I, 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 know I, I need to actually come back to seminary and take homiletics, but... But it's, I, I've reverted to Jewish-style preaching. You kind of read the text, and when you find something interesting, you just stop. You talk about it. 
And so uh, this morning I was fascinated, and I'm going to ask a seminary professor later to help me out. The word which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Check the Hebrew words. I spent a lot of money learning Hebrew in Hebrew school and seminary. And uh, I can tell you that the word there is word, and the word saw there is saw. Okay, just, you can take that to the bank. Now in verse 2. Now we'll come about in the last days. So these are the last days, future to today. The last days, or the end of the last days, if you believe they began at Pentecost. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. This is, this is the vision of the future Jerusalem that Isaiah saw when God gave him this devar, this word. And so he saw a geographic change. A lot of people believe that this implies that the temple will be re, re, uh, rebuilt during this time period. And I'm one of those who thinks that will happen. See me afterwards if you want to know why in the world we need a temple when this ultimate sacrifice has been made. I think I can explain it. But see me later. And then we read, And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house, that would be the temple, by it, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his paths, for the Lord will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. I hope you can understand me beyond my New York accent. And in verse 3, we see the very fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, because the word for nations... Words for people there implies that it is Gentiles. So a future Jerusalem will have streams of Gentiles coming in, and they won't be tourists. <laughs> they will be coming in to worship the Jewish Messiah who's reigning on his throne. And the calling of the Jewish people to be a nation of priests in Exodus 19 will be fulfilled. We'll finally understand it because you're going to need a lot of priests to take care of a lot of people. And the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And in verse 4, he will judge between the nations and render decisions for many peoples. We will finally have a pure, righteous system of justice. Our systems of justice are under siege right now. And we say, where's the answer? The answer is that one day, Judge Jesus is coming, and he never made a bad decision in his entire life, nor will he. He will judge because he sees through to the heart. And he'll judge between the nations and render decisions for many people. And then the question that so many people are asking today, why, when and how will we have peace? Don't you want peace? I do. My daughter lives in Jerusalem. I prefer peace. I would like peace. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Do you know where that inscription of that verse is? 
It's right in the heart of New York City. It's etched on a wall right across the street from the United Nations. <laughs> and yet, neither the United Nations nor any other earthly form of power or of government, no one can achieve what only Jesus can achieve. The day is coming, my brothers and sisters, when there will be peace. In other words, we have hope to offer a broken world. And that's a wonderful thing to do. You know, sometimes I wonder what it's going to look like. What will peace really be like? Dr. Patterson mentioned Psalm 122.6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. What will peace really be like in that day? I think it's going to be beautiful because the Lord we worship is a beautiful God. Amen? He will lift the curse of sin and refashion creation. And in that incredible passage in Ezekiel chapter 36, he compares the future Jerusalem to the Garden of Eden. And in that day, there'll be no need for peace treaties. We'll be one big, happy, redeemed family of Jews and Gentiles, Israelis and Arabs, as all humanity will live in peace, unity, and harmony. There'll be no more hunger for the bread of life will fill the faithful. If you can imagine, the day is coming when there will be no more poverty. No more natural disasters to destroy our homes and lives as the Lord will be our ever-present, eternal, never-ending source of safety. In that day, there'll be no shortage of clean, pure water as he will provide living water so that we will never thirst again. There'll no longer be a searching for meaning and the purpose in life as the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters fill the sea. There'll no, no longer be any corruption of our kings and rulers. All will be godly and fair. The mighty will be just, and the just will be mighty. There'll be no more killing by man or animal. There'll be no more health insurance. We will live forever. There'll be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more disappointment, no more sin. We'll be transformed and live in a kingdom of light, purity, and holiness. There'll be no more sorrow. Everyone will enjoy life, singing praises, eating at banquets, enjoying one another's company and fellowship. There will be no more war. Mothers, fathers, siblings will no longer live in fear of losing loved ones because of death. Death will have been conquered once for all. For his shalom will fill the earth. Let's pray for peace. And when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, brothers and sisters, I'll tell you what we're praying for. We're praying for God to give us strength to be peacemakers, to bring his shalom to individuals. But I'll tell you, when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we're praying for the Prince of Peace to return. And there's no shame in that, admitting that man can't do it. That's the nature of the gospel. 
it recognizes sin and our inability to do what only God can do and what God will do. Because one day, Jerusalem will be the center of the world. It will be everything that God intended it to be. And you're going to be thrilled because you and I are going to be dancing on the streets of that holy city. And I look forward to that great day, don't you? Until then, what do we do? Well, the gospel, the message of peace, giving people a hunger for what's to come. It's our privilege to bring the message of the Prince of Peace to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And may God bless you as you fulfill his purposes for you, for your lives. Let's pray. Abba, we thank you. We love you. We thank you, Lord, that indeed you are the Prince of Peace. And we thank you, Lord, for the promise of peace. We thank you that all of the promises in your word are yea and amen, and they will come to pass. As sure as you came the first time, you will come the second time. And so, Lord, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Most of all, we pray that your peace will reign in the hearts of individual Jews and Gentiles, that they might know you, whom to know is life everlasting. And we pray in your glorious name. Amen.